Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. Today, we have Stefan Gerlach, who is EFG's chief economist. So Stefan was the deputy governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, was a prominent economist in various different guises, even the Central Bank of Mauritius. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about Stefan's career, what are the key elements of uh, central bank policy today, and indeed, what are the key things around inflation targeting, and of course, what are the key themes for central banks to tackle with, such as environmental policy and social policies and politicization of that. So we'll call Stefan now. Very honoured and glad to have Stefan join uh, the podcast. Uh, Stefan. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to participate. I think these are very good, uh, these are very good things. Uh, these podcasts, they provide a lot more information than, uh, than you would get if you just, uh, if you just sort of saw written answers to questions. It's yeah. good to sort of know what people are thinking and then you it's much more informal uh, these these types of things yeah no, absolutely so stefan the the uh, question that i ask uh, everybody who comes on certainly in these early stages as we're getting to know each other is uh, where did you start your career and how did you end up at the central bank of ireland as the deputy governor that is a very long uh, it's a very long question so uh, <laughs> um so I started out my career. After, so I was a student in, in Geneva. I did my doctorate in Geneva and in the early 1980s. And um, I asked then a number of people for, for advice, what I should do when I finished and, uh, and so on. And people said pretty much the, uh, one thing. They said, uh, well, you know, we don't really hire people, economists, who haven't been to the U.S., um, and, and that has changed a lot now, but uh, in, in those years, this was a great advantage to have been to the U.S. And it turned out that then, as I think now, it's quite easy to uh, to get uh, to find funding if you want to go to the U.S. as a graduate student or as a postdoctoral scholar or something like that. If you find your funding yourself. Um, university, many universities will, will be happy to have you if you have a letter of recommendation. Um, and to get the funding, you need a letter of recommendation from the university. So, um, um, so I was, I was very fortunate because uh, my advisors in Geneva had very good connections in in the U.S. since they all had the degrees from the U.S. And I managed to get an invitation to go to Harvard as a visiting scholar. Uh, which I did, and then, uh, with that invitation, I, I, I got I, I got some funds. Uh, so I so I went over to uh, to Cambridge, Massachusetts, in early in in, in the summer of 1983, 20, uh, 37 years ago, actually. Now, wow. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so that's sort of where it um, where it, where it all start started. And regarding Ireland, this is a very sort of unusual story. I have as an economist. Uh, 
I mean, economists come in different sort of types. I mean, I sort of think of economics sort of as a tool to use and analyze the world and not sort of as a, something sort of abstract. Uh, I mean, some people are extremely interested in, you know, 15th century French grammar or something <laughs> like that. And some people are very interested in the theoretical models of, I don't know, what business angles and so on and so forth. That's not me. Uh, and what happened was that uh, uh, in the uh, summer of, in the spring of 2011, I was then a professor at the, uh, at University of Frankfurt uh, at an institute for monetary financial stability paid for by the German Ministry of Finance and the Bundesbank. So they gave some money to the university to run this institute with three professors and staff and so on and so forth. And I realized there was a conflict brewing between the university and the and the donors of this money, they gave every year a million euros for for this institute. And uh, for instance, the university was not keeping track of the money. As a matter of fact, they had not provided any accounts and so on and so forth. So I realized, <laughs> wow, this is pretty serious. Uh, so it seems likely to me that uh, when this first, I think it was a five-year funding period, is over, the donors would not want to fund this any longer. And then I'll be a completely ordinary professor at a completely ordinary German university and I'll have a, have a uh, full teaching load and some of the sort of nice things that I had on the side, travel money and research funds and so on and so forth. That would be all gone. I get the standard uh, set up and that was not very attractive to me. And just in that moment, I was uh, looking at the uh, at the Thursday Financial Times. And I don't know if you remember, but it used to be on Thursdays, there were job ads oh, yeah, in the yeah. Financial Times. I remember that. Yeah. So I looked at one, it was a big, on the left-hand side, it was a half-page ad saying that the um, Central Bank of Ireland is looking for deputy governor. And I quite seriously thought to myself, hmm, well, I've never been deputy governor. <laughs> and uh, of course, it is a sort of bizarre idea of a central bank that they would accept a non-national as a, in a senior position. So I remember I sent a very brief email to this headhunter saying, do you have to be Irish to buy this position? If not, I may contemplate doing so, yours truly. And I added my CV, I sent it in and I thought the whole idea was so ridiculous. I didn't tell, you know, uh, I didn't talk, tell anyone about this. I didn't talk to my friends about this. And I even forgot that I had applied for this thing. And then <laughs> a couple of months later, I got a call from, from this headhunter inviting me to Dublin. So, so that was that, um, that was that story. Oh, very interesting. So when, when you turn up at the, um, at uh, Central Bank of Ireland, you know, obviously that that time was pretty tumultuous. Um, yes. So you know, right. how on earth did you manage to sort of navigate? You know, your way through some of those tough periods. So, so I so I came to the summer of uh, 2011, and as you may remember, July that year was when the Irish yields peaked at something like 11 percent or something. Ten-year yields, 11 percent, I think it was. Um, so that was the worst situation. Well, the situation then was the following, that um, the uh, government had appointed a new governor, who uh, uh, Patrick Honan, who was not sort of a, a sort of a standard type of governor. Historically, the Central Bank of Ireland has always had as, had, had always had as governor someone from the Ministry of Finance. But Patrick's background was in sorting out banking systems, and he had worked 
many years for the World Bank and be consultant to a number of world governments and so on. So his area was really sorting out banking systems. And that was, of course, the, the, the center of the Irish, Irish crisis. So I think uh, um, Patrick wanted to sort of have a clean, uh, sort of a, a clean sweep in the central bank. So essentially, the entire entire senior management they were just decapitated, and he wanted to have outsiders to show the world and to show people in Frankfurt and Brussels, I think in particular, that the sort of factors that uh, had played a role in setting the stage for this for this crisis which was partially the fact that the central bank had been very ineffectual before that. Those factors had been swept away, and there was a new top team, and um, they were reasonable people. They, they were, there are two deputy governors at the Central Bank of Ireland, and the other uh, deputy governor is responsible for financial regulation, and he appointed an Englishman who had been, I think, governor of the Monterey Authority or of Bermuda, um, someone um, who had uh, so ha- had an established name uh, and so on and so forth. So I think the, the way he wanted to signal is a new group of people, and of course Patrick himself was was responsible. Or he do, you know he dealt basically with the. Um, and uh, negotiations uh, with, with Frankfurt and Brussels and so on. He was very much involved with that. And I felt that my job was essentially to, um, you know, help out as much as I could and also to work on changing the culture in the central bank and sort of make it a little bit more uh, uh, sort of modern, if you like, in, in, in some ways. And also to represent the central bank, of course, in, in various meetings and um, I used to go with Patrick to the meetings of the ECB's governing council, for instance, and uh, I think I think there was a sense uh, that had been a, a, a clean change at the central bank, and there were new people, and the new people would not let the things that had happened in the past uh, continue. Mm. So I think that's sort of the background uh, to that, and what and what I and what I did. Uh, yeah, and and uh, I guess you know it was obviously very successful because uh, spreads came in and probably uh, one of the best performing investment fixed income sovereign bond performances since then. <laughs> yes, I don't know if you remember, uh, there was, his name now escapes me, there was some, there was some investor who had an, an outsized uh, investment in, um, in Irish bonds. Uh, I can't remember the name. You, uh, you would know the name immediately if I, if I can ask, if I can just remember, uh, remember it. This was uh, some investor had an enormous large uh, position, and we were wondering why does he have such a large position? Uh, position. What's going on? What happens if he sells? But anyway, this 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 fellow, um, this fellow um, he stayed in, and he must have reaped enormous profits from the as Irish yields basically collapsed mm-hmm. over the coming. Over the coming years, yeah. No, it was a we we. It's, it wasn't probably us, but we certainly did have some investments in uh, in long dated oh, bonds <laughs> at that time. Yeah, so it was it was uh, quite a successful investment for us as well. Um, so um, uh, obviously, you've had a, a you know very interesting careers in 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 different places, uh, HKMA and and um, and BIS and so on and so forth. What um, you, you know, you you managed to work with some real prominent economists over that period um who would you say that you know were, were your favorites you know to work with and uh and, and and why they were so good to work with so i i think the, the sort of the economists i i like the most 
uh, and I found most interesting and had sort of the greatest impact on my career. I didn't necessarily work closely with them, but that was a number of the faculty members at Harvard and MIT. Uh, they were teaching courses. I was auditing some of these courses, but there were lots of seminars and presentations and so on and so forth. And you had ample opportunity to be present in the room when they were discussing. And these were people like um, Larry Summers, who was uh, later on Secretary of the Treasury under uh, under Clinton, Olivier Blanchard, who was Chief Economist at the IMF, Stanley Fisher, who was uh, Deputy Chairman of the Fed, Deputy Managing Director of the IMF, Governor of the Central Bank of of, of Israel, and I think chief economist at the, at the World Bank, and so on and so forth. These were just phenomenal uh, people. And uh, to, just to, to be present in the room when, then, uh, when they were debating economics or uh, sort of discussing research or talking about policy questions in particular, uh, current issues was a phenomenally interesting. You learned a lot about um, for instance, how about, I mean, how do you sort of do economics? How do you structure a a, a persuasive uh, argument and so on? And these, these people were all um, very practically oriented. I mean, they were excellent theorists as well, um, but they all did real world work as chief economists in these institutions. And one thing I learned there is that uh, you know, economic models, uh, I mean, for some people, they have a sort of beauty in their own. But for most of us, economic models, you use them to analyze the real world phenomenon. And hopefully your model needs to capture key aspects of that phenomenon or it's not or it's not a useful uh, model. Uh, but if it does, a little model can be very helpful for understanding the real world. world. The, the then eminent uh, German macroeconomist uh, Rüdiger Dornbusch. Um, I remember him talking about economic mo uh, models. He liked very simple economic models, a couple of equations, nothing sort of big. And he spoke of these models sort of as, as a Volkswagen, I remember. He said, you know, these models, they are like a Volkswagen. They're simple, they're easy to drive, but they will get you there. They will give you an answer to all the questions you're, you're dealing with. So I, I found that very interesting. These are very distinguished economists, but talking about very practical real world issues and using economics as a tool to help understand those issues, but not sort of as an abstract uh, object of, of, of beauty. Mm. Um, so I thought that was very, very, very helpful, mm, very yeah. interesting period. To yeah. And I think certainly one of the things that you've helped us um, along with, uh, you know, Daniel, Daniel, Gianluigi and, and Joaquin on, on the macro team to be able to use some of those simplistic models to help explain, you know, where we are in, in the real world in terms of uh, macroeconomics and then being able to interpret what that might mean for, um, for financial asset prices. And I think the, the key thing is, and for me at least, the beauty of all of this is the imprecision of it, right? Because um, you can sit down and develop a model and spend a huge amount of time to explain everything. But actually, the real world doesn't work in that way. You know, imprecision is part of the world that we live in, right? So, you know, if you can get there 85% of the time, you're already doing very, very well. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's precisely the, the lesson. I have a, a good friend who is a bit of a star in the European uh, Commission, 
um, and he has had very prominent jobs and had done really, really well. And I, re I remember asking him probably some 15 years ago, I mean, how do you, how do you do so well? I said, what are you, what is your trick? How do you so do, yeah, how do you rise so far in the economics establishment? And he said, it's effectively precisely what you said. He said, look, Stefan, there is very little advantage to knowing the sort of the small details that you would learn in a PhD level course in economics. But just knowing sort of standard undergraduate and master's level economics, macroeconomics, microeconomics, and econometrics very well. And that takes you sort of, that gives you a good first shot of, of the question. If you can use that, that toolbox, uh, you'll do very well. But the payoff in the real world to these advanced courses in abstract economic theory is minimal. Uh, I thought it was very good advice. Mm, no, very good advice. No, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you've walked, you know, the, the different halls of uh, the ECB and the Fed and um, uh, HKMA, you know, um, what are the sort of, you know, um, challenges that, you, you know, being on the other side, you know, what are the challenges of being a central banker in, in some of these places, you know, uh, the the thing that comes to mind from my perspective is always, you know, the Trump bashing of Powell, you know, uh, uh, sort of, I guess, uh, 18 months ago was pretty difficult uh, for Powell. Having having been, you know, Trump's favorite in the beginning and then being chastised by him must have been really difficult. How, you know, what are the what are the practical challenges that central banker faces? Um. So I think the key problem is actually just to persuade the public uh, that you are um, also of what you're trying to do and, and that that is reasonable and also persuade the public that in fact you're not doing some of these things uh, that they think you're doing. Uh, for instance, in the, in, the, uh, in the sort of 35 years or so that I've had contact with various central bankers, I've never heard a central banker say, that they cut interest rate because stock prices fell. Um, however, they very, very often cut interest rate because something bad happens in the economy. And if something bad happens in the economy, of course, stock prices fall. So it sort of looks like they're looking at stock prices, but in fact, they're not. They're looking at the things that are reflected in stock prices, and that, that does matter. And this is one example of how central banks have, you know, uh, they just have lots of problems explaining to the world, get people to believe that what they're saying is actually true. Lots of people would say, oh, no, no, they're doing it anyway, uh, and so on. And that sort of comes back time and time again. I remember when I was at the HKMA in the early 2000s, um, I think the... I think the renminbi was approaching, uh, I think, parity with the Hong Kong dollar. And uh, I think the, the euro was approaching parity <laughs> with the US dollar one-to-one. -one. Uh, and there were sort of market speculation, uh, mad ideas that all these currencies would be fixed at a certain rate when all these things happened the same day. And of course, no one was talking about that. It would be, you know, not possible to do, but very often the public or some parts of the public feel that the central bank is not telling the truth. They are in fact doing something and they don't admit it. But that's, that's often, that's very rarely the case. So just persuading the people that, that you're actually trying to do what, you, what you're doing and that that is a good idea is a very large part 
of central banking. And that's why if you look at the really sort of big governors, uh, they has come across as, as credible, reasonable persons. I remember when I was at the BIS, I had written a note for discussion uh, among the governors, a note on, on inflation targeting. So this must have been something like, uh, when could this have been 1999 uh, or something like that. And I, since I had written the note, I was allowed into the governor's meeting and I, I, was, I was, uh, had to sit behind the chairman of the meeting, which was uh, Alan Greenspan. And I'd never heard Greenspan talk to governors before. I thought it's going to be really interesting. And in fact, it was. Because the moment Greenspan spoke, it was complete silence in, in the room. Everybody saw him then, perhaps not now, but everybody saw him then as just being completely credible, completely reasonable. And it was not that he was arguing any sophisticated points or any technical economics and so on and so forth. He would say things like, well, I think in this situation, it would be sensible for a central bank to do A, B, and C. So, you know, in that form. But everybody, I think, all the 50 governors in the room, they obviously felt that, you know, if Greenspan says doing A, B, and C is the right thing, they probably should do that too. That must make sense. And if you are uh, uh, able, as a senior central banker, to persuade the world of whether your view of the world probably is the reasonable uh, thing, uh, you know, a lot, is, a lot is won. It's never really clear at any point in time what is the right policy for the very simple reason that we don't really know in real time what's happening in the economy. Is inflation slowing down? Is, is economic growth picking up? Uh, what is the sentiment in financial markets uh, and so on? It's never really clear what you're doing and it's never really clear what is the best policy. But as a central banker, if you're sort of able to explain, well, I think this is the best policy for these reasons, you're able to explain things like that and, and people believe you, then a lot is won. And if you're not able to do this, you can, I mean, as you know, you, you immediately have people in the market saying, ah, no, no, they're not doing that. Or that's never going to work, etc." And then ex uh, market expectations start to take over and all sorts of things can happen uh, with the exchange rates and um, bond yields and risk spreads and so on and so forth. So being able to persuade the people, I think, is, is hugely important. Good governors, I just come across as being incredibly reasonable, persuasive, thoughtful people, people that you would trust making these hard decisions. Yeah, I think it's interesting because various surveys have always suggested that the Federal Reserve, for example, is the most trusted institution in the US, uh, government institution in the US. Uh, it always ranks up at the top and arguably one probably say that that's probably the same globally um so um, some countries i mean like in italy for instance i mean some people said italy is the, is the only institution which is not corrupt and so on and so forth <laughs> i think it's true uh, i think this is a good point and in many countries that's the case the central bank has some extra has a very prominent standing and is, and is seen as very credible yeah and and you know when you think about the civil service you know generally speaking you know there are very few institutions that are you know so important in terms of the well-being of the of the wider population and 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 actually if you are the um the the federal reserve chairman you also have you know influence over emerging markets and uh, everywhere else that are all pegged to the same currency Yes, that's right. I mean, a large part of uh, the consequences of, of what the Fed does felt uh, in, in, you know, in the in emerging market economies is absolutely true. 
So, um, you know, so if you're sitting in, in the Federal Reserve, Stefan, and, uh, you know, you suddenly have whoever is the president at the time, um, you know, really providing a lot of heat, you know, how do you deflect the attention? How, I mean, you know, Powell was very good because, you know, uh, he, he didn't say anything, right? He didn't respond back, you know, he kind of just put his head down and, you know, you had various statements coming out that, uh, you know, uh, the president didn't have the power to fire, you know, the the uh, the head of the uh, the central bank. But, uh, you know, h- how do you cope in that sort of situation? So, I mean, I spoke to a very, uh, very, very senior staffer, so not a member of the FOMC, but very close to uh, the members of the FOMC about this. And I asked... Uh, is this a problem for you? Trump's tweeting, is this a problem? And he said, uh, no, actually, it's not a problem at all. The the only thing we have to be careful with, and that, that does require some time, is that we need to go through speeches and so on and so forth to make sure we are not unnecessarily triggering uh, a tweet by the president. Right. But this is not this is no problem at all. And I also asked, uh, um, tell me, the president has been talking about appointing various people to the FOMC, uh, people with very unusual views about monetary policy, uh, you know, reintroduction of the gold standard, and so on and so forth. Um, is this a problem for the Fed? Uh, and the answer came back very quickly: No, no, it's not a problem at all. We've had, uh, uh, I think, there were. I think it was something like uh, we've had um, we've had uh, incompetent people working here before, uh, and so on <laughs> and so forth. Um, so no, they they really um, they really said this was not a problem. I think as I said, I mean the, the president couldn't legally fire the chairman of the Federal Reserve, but if he did, and this is the big change between uh, forty years ago and now, if he did, the responses in financial markets. Would be so massive that that would not be a good idea. Even if you could do it, you it that would not be a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the role of financial markets in monetary policy has has completely changed in recent decades. The markets are now so large and, and can exert so much discipline on central banks that you don't want to do things that you may be legally able to do uh, if you upset the markets. You know, if people start to think that, uh, that oh, this is a crazy thing. I I'm not sure the central bank is going to be able to do this right. No, 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 this is really worrisome. You see immediate bond yields start to rise, currencies start to depreciate and so on. So, so the, the disciplining effect um, of the markets is just so phenomenal um, these days that that really constrains the ability of politicians to, um, to fiddle with monetary policy in the, in the countries where they can still do that. Yeah, I was uh, very fortunate to have, have lunch with Janet Yellen. Um, I guess about I guess about eighteen months ago, um, just after the the Powell situation, and um, and uh, and she made a comment which I, which really stuck um, uh, stuck with me, and and that was that the the challenges that Trump provided in terms of tweets was not necessarily having a direct impact on the Federal Reserve or, or, or Powell himself, but actually it damaged the long-term credibility of the Federal Reserve. And I think that was the the point that she made, was it wasn't necessarily, or, or at least it cast, you know, casted doubt in the public's mind 
over the Federal Reserve. You know, because if you have, you know, the president saying, well, you know, you know this guy is incompetent or whatever, it, 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 it the very least it, it sparks a question in, you know, I don't know, sort of Central America, <laughs> uh, you know, around, around, um, uh, around the credibility of Federal Reserve that they probably never questioned before. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right because I mean some people will think when the president says that uh, he you know says things like that some people will think oh he's going to change the Fed uh, I mean more seasoned observers they think no this is not going to matter very much but there's some number of people that, that think well this is this might matter but of course these people will will position themselves in the market accordingly or buy you know, sell off shares and so on and so forth or etc so it does have an it does have an impact on the general credibility of the central bank it's just never a good idea for you as a uh, um, as a central bank to be seen as having a, a conflict uh, with the government and it's never really in the government's interest to yeah. sort of yeah. suggest to the world that central bank and you are not thinking in the same way so there, there, there are no benefits uh, from this mm-hmm. um, even if you can't do very much uh, you, you know so I mean some people could say oh the, the president can't fire the chairman of the uh, of the of the Fed but uh, uh, I mean, nevertheless, there is uh, always some people that worry and so on. So the, yeah, this is not helpful. Mm. So um, let's go to a complete other end of the spectrum. So <laughs> you, you you managed to spend a bit of time at uh, the Central Bank of Mauritius. Um, yes. Uh, Tell me about that experience. Uh, obviously, you know, not the most world-renowned central bank, but uh, you know, what uh, what were the typical challenges that they had? <laughs> yeah, I used to say that we don't have the world's best monetary policy committee, but we have the best tanned monetary policy committee. <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite interesting. So um, this was when I was in Frankfurt. I received a a, a, a telephone call. From an uh, from an, uh, an academic in London who was an advisor to the to the Prime Minister of Mauritius, and he said, "Stefan, the Prime Minister would like to introduce a monetary policy committee uh, here in Mauritius and um, introduce inflation targeting and move in the direction of inflation targeting." Now, you spent a couple of years in Hong Kong; you're now an academic. Would you like to be a member of this monetary policy committee? And I sort of asked, how would that work? And he said, well, they would have, um, like other central banks uh, in economies in which there, there's not a lot of data, for instance, like in Switzerland, <laughs> they would have a quarterly meeting. And then you would come to the quarterly meeting um, and participate, be a voting member of the NPC. So that's how it sort of started out. So I did this for four years. And one thing you sort of you realize quickly is that um, – you know, economic policymakers face very similar questions uh, across the world. I mean, what's happening to the economy is the most obvious. It's the most obvious question. People, you, you never know what's happening right now. You know what the data tells you, perhaps with some luck about last month or last quarter or something like this, but knowing where the economy is now, no one really knows that. And that was also true in, uh, in Mauritius. Um, 
And I think we also have sort of sort of similar situations that policymakers would face in other countries. I remember we had an NPC meeting with demonstrators on the street outside. They wanted to have uh, they were pushing for higher wages or something like that. So yeah, you sort of have the sense you you were operating in the same situation as other central banks. I think the main difference was that in many emerging market economies, you don't have large economics department and senior people in the central bank. Uh, tend not to be sort of necessarily sort of technically trained economists. They they are like policymakers everywhere. They are smart people and so on. But in emerging markets economies, small emerging market economies, um, you don't have so many people that you can draw on. So they may, may be, for instance, they may be uh, by training accountants, by training, and maybe lawyers by training, or or so on. And. Uh, uh, so the, the the technical discussion in, in terms of economics was not as high as it would be in the, in the Bank of England or so. But I mean, the, the issues were were the same, and that was uh, I found uh, really very interesting. Uh, I attended the meetings of the ECB's governing council for four years, as I as I said, and you know many of the questions were the same. Where are we right now? What's happening next? Mm. And of course, there were some sort of some some funny things in, in Mauritius too. Um, so the central bank steers the short-term money market rate, but of course that has an impact on your on your profits or your losses as, as a central bank. But um, uh, if you don't, if you're not willing to sort of pay the interest rate that you say you're going to pay on on bank on banks reserves with the central bank then banks will not deposit there and then your monetary policy will not be effective and it dawned on me over time that we were moving the short-term interest rate up and down but had virtually no impact on actual money market rates because there were no banks uh, uh, actually depositing with the uh, with the central bank and because of the rates that we were quoting, uh, I mean, we were actually no, no, for a profit and loss uh, perspective, we didn't really want to pay these rates. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so it was, it was really quite, uh, it was really quite funny. I, I must, uh, I must say, but it was hugely educational for me, and I think it was a good process also for uh, for, uh, for the Central Bank of Mauritius. It sort of uh, it. Um, it learned more about how to um, set monetary policy. I, I left the committee in 2011, and they continued afterwards, and they have seen development in financial markets and so on. In many of the ways, that's what happens in central banks. They adopt some policy framework. They start seeing problems here and there, and they change one thing uh, you know, after the other. And then over time, they develop a more effective policy framework. So, yeah, it was a very educational uh, a story, uh, episode of my life. I must say, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. Great. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll have a drink sometime, and you can give us a little bit more detail on what the uh, the best hangout places were. So, um, so let's move on to uh, the current day. Um, obviously, we had the COVID crisis. I think you know um, we all agreed that the central banks have really played their part very well. Uh, they acted quickly. They acted with enormity. They really got ahead of the the challenges, and I think the recoveries that we're now um, um, seeding are are starting to bear fruit. Right. So, uh, what are your thoughts on that, and and how would you grade them in terms of the handling of the current crisis? So I think that's. I mean, I think that's precisely uh, right. Um, 
Um, central banks have done really well. I mean, it's too early to say, you know, did this uh, work well or not? What's what's their scorecard for this episode? But the, the things that you emphasize are exactly the same things that I was, uh, would emphasize, with it, which is that they took action much faster now than in 2008. And the Fed was very fast in 2008, but nobody else was really fast in 2008. Certainly not the ECB, for instance. But now central banks were much uh, sort of more on there, much faster to react and took much stronger measures earlier on. And partially, I think that's because they have realized that they can do much more than they thought they could do. In, In 2008, we had this very simple view of the world where uh, uh, where central banks have uh, one target, inflation, in most countries, not in the US, but in many other countries, they have one target, inflation. They have a single policy instrument, this is a short-term interest rate, and they they uh, target inflation until 2%. Uh, that sort of world has sort of given way. Now central banks realize, oh, we have actually lots of targets, uh, uh, lots of objectives. Most obviously, we have QE. Um, but we have lots of uh, objectives. We can do lots of things to impact on the economy. And we've used them in 2000, between 2008 and 2015. And let's use some of them now. So, uh, for instance, the ECB was very quick uh, to adopt this pandemic purchase program and so on. Uh, and they were very slow to develop the first purchase program, effectively. Um, so, so I mean, the, the speed by which they acted uh, was, uh, I mean, that's very helpful. It is, uh, you know, if you immediately uh, take action, you are likely to, to, redu- uh, to reduce the severity of the crisis quite substantially. It's sort of like if someone really falls ill or has a bad accident, the, quickly, the faster you get into hospital, the better. Um, so I think from that perspective, it looks much better now than it has done in the past. How it will work out in the long run, of course, we don't really know. We don't know how, how persistent this crisis will be. Um, some people are worried about inflation. Now I'm not, but some people are very worried about inflation will follow. And we just have to see what, what happens. But so far, I think it looks good, largely, mainly because the speed by which central banks reacted. So um, so, so contrasting the, the, the periods, I, I remember attending the um uh, a lunch at the um at uh, i think a new york economist club um and uh, i was fortunate enough to have uh, uh at this uh, at this lunch we had ben bernanke do a speech and then trichet did one just after um and uh, i had pr- probably um a huge amount of confidence when ben bernanke spoke and then when trichet spoke it was it just disappeared very quickly and then and then and then i looked at sort of um you know uh the dow jones um uh, as soon as um Trichet started speaking it fell another 500 points and so and i was sort of looking at it thinking oh god this is just this is not gonna sort of end very well you had someone who was you know really adopting um you know qe and, and really someone who who had a command of you know the challenges that that um, were there and how to resolve them, Patricia was you know, still contemplating raising interest rates. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> just just as Lehman was about to go under. But the the um, I guess the contrast is very very to me is always very intriguing. How would you contrast in terms of the the central banks today? Are they much more coherent as a group, or do you think they still very much? 
um, you know, stuck in their old kind of ways and, and, you know, focusing their own, you know, agendas and economies? So I think they are much more similar from that uh, from that perspective. I mean, if you go back to the episode you were talking about, which I think actually I had, I, you hadn't told me this before, but this is a fascinating story. And uh, I mean, what people don't know is that Bernanke, when he was an academic, he had um, uh, written, he studied intensely what the Fed did wrong in the Great Depression. And of course, what the Fed did wrong in the Great Depression was that they didn't do anything, didn't do enough. And I remember uh, when uh, in 2008, I realized, yes, he published all those papers in a book, which I mean, you know, is out of print for 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 ten years or so. And I tried to find it in a used. uh, It's a soft cover. I tried to find it sort of in one of these used bookstores on the kind of the web. And I think it was, uh, you know, the 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 original purchase price was twenty dollars, and I think you could then buy it like at three. $350 $350 or something like that. <laughs> Lots of people in the markets are wondering well, what lessons had he drawn mm-hmm. about the Great Depression and what might he do now? So he really knew, but he understood the problem. Uh, and, and Trichet, of course, he was not he was not a central banker by training. I mean, he was, uh, um, I think, appointed to sort of give a political face to the euro. No one anticipated any serious problems with the euro, except in dealing with the political aspects of the euro. And you wanted to have someone who, you know, could cut a good figure with, with presidents and prime ministers and so on. But of course, um, the financial crisis uh, really indicated that you needed uh, expertise. To, and as you say, I mean, the then the ECB had this really odd view of the world which is that they split up monetary policy into two parts. They first had ordinary monetary policy, and that's where you look sort of at inflation uh, and GDP growth and so on. And of course, inflation and GDP growth react only slowly to market turbulence. And so their view was that from that perspective, there was no need to cut the interest rates because the euro area economy, if you look at the data, which is a backward looking, if you look at the data, the euro area economy is doing well, inflation is, is you know, it's not collapsing or so on. So um, let's just maintain interest rates or as, as you know, they raise them at this sometimes as well. Um, uh, and then they had all, but then we have this market pressure. Ah, but that we can deal with, with a separate tool which is sort of liquidity policy, and they started to do things very early on. Of course, this was, uh, they didn't realize, they were not sort of, they didn't understand uh, just how central financial markets are to the functioning of the macroeconomy. And if financial markets are under stress, of course, the macroeconomy will take a big hit. So this was uh, an intellectual framework that was simply not fit for purpose. This was a really big mistake, looking back at it. And this is something that economic historians will say. Well, the ECB was not at all in the, in the space of taking action quickly. They did not at all see that these financial market uh, turbulences would impact on the economy. And they sort of conducted policy the wrong way. I mean, as you know, they raised interest rate in the this, in this spring. They raised interest rates in July 2008. And they raised interest rates in the spring of 2011, in the middle of, of the fiscal crisis. Uh, again, this was, be, I think, largely because they didn't, uh, they didn't really fully understand how these things sort of fit, mm. fit together. Mm. So uh, uh, now I think, to return to your question, now I think there's much more homogeneity among central banks. They all understand now that financial markets are really critical. And if financial markets are in distress, 
you're not going to get the macroeconomy to recover, and therefore you need to be ready to do things like, uh, you know, pumping liquidity when that's necessary. And of course, you know, pumping in liquidity is one thing, but as you know, uh, it also issues about collateral practices, the number of counterparties you have as a central bank, how you get the liquidity out in the system, etc. There are a number of these really much more technical questions that that really matter, and that's I think all central banks now realize that, and that's why all central banks responded so quickly now uh, when COVID struck. <laughs> so um, one of the big themes of the day is around uh, obviously inflation and inflation targeting. Um, wh- what are your thoughts? Obviously, there's a there's a big anticipation now that the Fed is going to make some, uh, you know, inflation targeting announcements over the coming, uh, you know, over the coming weeks and months. Uh, what are your thoughts around um, what that might look like? So, I mean, so so two issues here. I think with respect to the Fed and inflation targeting and inflation, uh, inflation targets for the Fed and so on, um, the Fed has something similar to the inflation target right now. Uh, as you know, the members of the FOMC are asked every quarter to come up with their projections for the economy, their long, their forecast for the economy of the next years. And there is a one one uh, question, uh, so, but what do you think will be the situation in the long run? And from that long run, yes, you can get a sense of um, the FOMC members' views about, for instance, productivity growth, but also uh, what objective they have for inflation. And these members all say that in the, in the longer run, inflation will be at 2%. So in that way, I think the Fed sort of does have an inflation target. Now, if you, if you do want to do something more than so, you may want to, uh, ha- you may have to change the Federal Reserve Act. But in the US, it's not possible to change the Federal Reserve Act and say, okay, let's, let's just write in an inflation target. Because the moment the Federal Reserve Act is up for grabs, there will be lots of other ideas. Yes, very good idea. But for instance, what we do with supporting bank lending to small firms owned by minorities? Um, how about uh, how about uh, banks and uh, and customer protection and so on and so forth? So there will be lots of political problems to throw in. All, and the is going to want to throw in all sorts of other things. So I'm not sure if it's actually legal change is practical. I mean, it's, it's a possibility. It would be very difficult to get that through unless you were willing to change a number of, of, of things. So my guess is that if it does anything with inflation targeting, it would probably be just to clarify a little bit more uh, what they have in mind, in particular the issue whether they always aim for 2% inflation or if you could temporarily aim for a higher rate of inflation. And if you look at uh, sort of the academic writings of the president uh, of, the, uh, of the New York Fed, John Williams, who's a very, very impressive economist, he has argued for, for a long time that if you have a zero lower bound episode, one way of sort of overcoming that is to make clear to, to people that if, you, if inflation is too low for a while, have to be too high or a little bit above target uh, later on to compensate um, for that. Uh, and, you know, that would be, could be formally price level targeting, but informally you could get the same effect simply by saying that, well, you know, when we interpret our inflation target, we sort of do it in like on average over time. I think that's actually what most most uh, journalists would do too. They would compute the average inflation rate in an economy and compare that to the inflation targets. So if you've been low for a while, you could be a little bit higher later on. I can see stuff like that happening. 
But I don't think the Fed will adopt a for, uh, formal legal inflation objective because that uh, does not seem to be necessary and also could be very difficult. But I do think there's another issue here that we need to be more sensitive uh, to. And that is the, this issue where the sort of uh, what the long run effects of uh, the developments that we've seen in recent years will uh, will be. The, the eminent American economic historian Barry Eichengreen, he wrote a uh, his first book that came up about 30 years ago was called Golden Fetters. And in it, he analyzed the collapse of the um, of the gold standard, which collapsed in the 19 in the 1930s. And his argument was that uh, developments in the economy and in society at large made maintenance of the gold standard impossible. And uh, so he was arguing that, um, first of all, the right to vote had been spread. I mean, many more people were allowed to vote in the 1930s than they were in 1900 or in 1890 in most most countries. Um, And uh, moreover, World War I had been fought largely by, you know, young men, often from working class young men, and there was this sense that the, the, sort of the world had changed. Their social standing, in a sense, uh, had been uh, sort of had risen. And this idea that you could sustain uh, a gold standard by when it became necessary, having a sharp deflation, a very high unemployment rate, and so on and so forth. That was not sort of politically possible because these people now had rights to vote and they would not vote for parties that wanted to pursue this policy. So Eichen Green is arguing essentially that the gold standard or monetary policy in those days, you know, ran into conflict with just political developments and therefore, you know, you know, something's got to go and it was the gold standard that went out the door. Well, I think we may be moving in that direction also now because there are a number of concerns here that are sort of uh, 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 people in society politicians and so on and so forth are are starting to to push one of these concerns is this uh, all these environmental concerns and i think central banks will be under increasing pressure to in deciding collateral practices and so on and so forth um, favor some bonds issued by some firms uh, uh, as opposed to bonds issued by other firms. And uh, the idea there is, of course, you will raise the cost for some of these firms to fund themselves, the any polluting firms. And, uh, and that will, uh, you know, gently uh, lead them to change their ways or contract their businesses and, and so on. Well, some central banks say, well, you know, that's not in our, in, that's not in our legal, uh, um, in our central bank act. We're not supposed to do that. Um, there's a lot of concern right now about the consequences uh, on on wealth distribution uh, coming from this episode of very low interest rates. And of course, central banks really have to set the interest rate that's got to set. But they could uh, they need to be aware of the fact that there has been a very strong reaction uh, to these things. People are are quite. Uh, quite unhappy about this. Not only people at large, but also politicians are quite um, unhappy at this. And of course, here in Switzerland, we had this issue there. Some people feel that the SMB, who has now almost a trillion in reserves, should pay out the larger part of its profits. Uh, uh, sort of then society can use this for 
um, pay for this uh, for the uh, you know the financial consequences of the COVID crisis. There are some really big things sort of pushing in one direction, and I suspect that central banks will face a uh, situation where this idea of just pursuing monetary policy in the same way as they did before the crisis and say, well, that worked fine. Why don't, why don't we just return to that? I don't think that is feasible. Mm-hmm. And I think that is why Madame Lagarde and the ECB now is, um, is um, um, talking about the, the, um, this be having actually uh, several objectives, uh, and one of the objectives is to quote support the general economic policies of the European Union, and then of course one of these policies is plainly to deal with uh, these environmental uh, effects. I, I wrote a little piece, an opinion piece that was published uh, in English and German on the Swiss uh, website called The Market, and in this piece I was arguing that. Uh, the ECB has explained its asset purchases very poorly. If you ask people at large, they all say, well, the ECB bought these bonds to, to, to you know, safeguard the euro, sustain the euro, make sure the euro didn't collapse. If you ask the ECB, the ECB says, oh, it was a technical monetary policy decision. We wanted to ex- uh, provide additional stimulus and, and so on and so forth. They motivate this by, uh, as arguments, it was just monetary policy. I don't know, I haven't met anyone who felt that this, when they started buying these assets in 2015, this was an issue of uh, just adding more stimulus. Many people see it as you know, yeah, sustaining the euro. And very interestingly, I got uh, sort of private communications from people in the, in the, in the, in the, in the euro system uh, arguing or saying this is very interesting. In fact, we do have several, we do have this objective of supporting the general economic policies uh, of the European Union. And perhaps we will make more. And I, well, I interpret this as suggesting, and certainly given Madame Lagarde's statements about the um, about the importance of environmental policies, as perhaps the ECB will move more in the direction of, of, of relying on or motivating things that it does. Uh, on the basis of these secondary legal objectives that are spelled out in the in the treaty, mm-hmm. so I think there could be a, a, a change in central banking uh, going forward. Uh, but we have to see <laughs> what that will be. But it's, yeah, these are not these are challenging times for for central banks when when large number of people in society say, well, you know, we can't just go back and do what we did before. We have to worry about the environment. We have to worry about income distribution and. You know, if you have very large reserves, perhaps we should use some of them to uh, sustain the economic or to repair the economic damage of the COVID. Mm. Well, I think um, the sort of key, the key development here is, is that uh, obviously there's the balance of being politicized, right? Because essentially there is a, there's a political element uh, that, that, that comes with it, uh, particularly Environmental policies, particularly in the U.S., is is a very political um, development, as uh, as we know. So, um, it is a very interesting um, theme that we we're seeing some of this politicaliz- uh, politicization. I guess is probably the right terminology of of some of these policies. Um, but they, I guess, they are there for the greater good, and ultimately, I guess, what, what central bank policy is about. 
Um, is, I think thing. that's precisely right. I mean, central banks' policies are they're sort of often written down in legal form in the in, in the treaty. But if in a treaty, in the case of the ECB, or in the Central Bank Act, in the case of the Fed or the SNB or most central banks, but if these sort of formal statement actually crash badly with the views of, of the public and 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 the political sphere of society, then these can all be changed. You know, this is not. These are not. Uh, these reflect, I think, a political agreement at any point in time. I mean, take central bank independence itself. I mean, some people say, oh, the central bank is independent. Well, with the exception of the ECB, the central bank is independent, and but it, 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 there is a, just a law that, uh, that safeguards the independence. And that law, like any other law, could be changed overnight if the political um sphere of society wants to do so so central banks cannot just go against the will of the public and and, and the politicians they need to sort of live with them and 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 do uh, you know you know pay attention to what what, what people at large want uh, independence they're not sovereign states these central banks i mean central banks i think are independent in the sense that the court is independent which is that uh, you know, they can make a technical decision whether someone is guilty or not, whether interest rates should be cut or not. But uh, but uh, that's as far as the independence uh, searches. And uh, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, what people want them to do, then I guess the laws could very well be changed. So one has to be, as a central bank, one has to be very careful here. Mm. Well, I think that's a very, very good point. I think uh, last week we had Dan Clifton on the podcast and, uh, you know, the question I posed to him is, you know, why are we seeing these kind of uprising with, um, you know, populist um, you know, policies you know, coming coming through um, or eventually coming through? Um, and I think one of the points he made about the US in particular was the fact that the US is not used to having sub 3% growth rates where, you, you know, where we've we've been for the previous decade of, of you know, more like 2% and below in, in, in the US. And it's, uh, and that has obviously caused a lot of hardship and this distribution, distribution of wealth issue because there hasn't been enough success being passed on to, to the broader population. Yeah, no, that's, um, I mean, that's precisely right. You know, if the economy is growing at 3% or so, when everyone gets wealthier, you can have more government spending. You could have uh, higher real wages. Uh, everything looks looks good in a boom. But once the growth rate starts to fall, well, then you have serious trade-offs. You know, uh, where where do the money go? Should we have higher salaries, or should we, uh, you know, have, have more governments? I mean, the, the conflicts then become become obvious so with low growth. These problems loom very large, and uh, so yeah, he's right. I think he's quite right. Mm. This, this is a big problem. Mm. So, um, so no doubt we will we'll certainly keep uh, our uh, our clients informed of how these uh, key decisions get made over over the coming uh, months and years. I, I think it's a very very. I think particularly bringing central policy central bank policy in with the environment and distribution of wealth you know, certainly has kind of major implications of how central bank policy moves forward um, from here. Uh, so we will certainly keep everybody informed of uh, of our views on that. So we, we, we're drawing to the end and it's been a, an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion, Stefan. So one of the last questions I always ask 
um, anybody comes on is what advice would you give your young self as a budding economist? So, uh, well, it depends a little bit on what type of economist they are, but suppose they want to be sort of an economist in the financial sector, then I, I think I would tell them sort of two things. First, I would tell them, I would advise them to actually study financial economics. Uh, in many economics departments or the economics program, uh, people don't get exposure to financial economics. Uh, they don't get exposure to economic history. They may not get exposure to labor economics and so on and so forth. But I think it's just really, uh, if you want to understand the macroeconomy, uh, financial markets have become such important determinants of what happens in the macroeconomy that, uh, you know, the training that people got in the past, which uh, you know, macroeconomists got in the past, was no exposure necessary to finance and and so on that is not a good starting point uh, now so so i would uh, i would advise them to um, make sure that they get uh, some exposure to financial economics so they have sort of at least some clue of what 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 that is uh, about and i would also advise them i think to when they start out their career and their first job Try to get some exposure to the uh, to the official sector. That is to work with the central bank or a ministry of finance, or perhaps in a public debt office or something like that. Uh, because economists, um, uh, they work in the public sector. They get a, a very good sense of actually what the so, uh, what policymakers thinks of things. I mean, what issues are policymakers uh, interested in, and uh, what makes them tick. Uh, and uh, I mean, for instance, policymakers, they know perfectly well that economic theory evolves over time and the truth as we know it today may be laughed at in three years time. And therefore it doesn't make much sense to sort of conduct economic policies uh, that are, um, you know, and motivate them on the basis of current recent theoretical thinking, because that's probably gonna change. You might look pretty foolish as a minister of finance in, in a very short period of time. So you get a lot of, a lot of that sort of um, background. And also, of course, if, if you work in the public sector, you get a lot of training into how to argue something as an economist, how to sort of build up a good story, uh, etc. So that's, I think that would be my advice. Get a couple of years in, in, a, in a public sector job as an, as an economist, and then you can, you can do uh, you know, what you like. But, but uh, I think these, uh, those two pieces of advice I would, uh, I would give people. Well, certainly, um, I think that is very good advice. I, I think uh, you know, being able to sort of bring practical experience into a, into a role is is obviously uh, you know rather than just purely a theoretical uh, construct is definitely something that's going to take you a long way. Uh, so so Stefan, thank you very much for uh, for a very enlightening. Uh, walk down central bank policy lane. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fun. And uh, you know, we obviously we look forward to having you again on, and we can certainly tackle some of the um, some of the the events. No doubt will will come to um, come to light o over the coming weeks. So uh, thanks again, Stefan, and uh, thank you. Keep well. So that was uh, Stefan. So um, hopefully you found that very interesting. Please listen to our other podcasts with uh, Tara Swart and actually Dan Clifton. Um, you'll find those, uh, I think, equally, if not more, stimulating as well. Remember, please, if you like us to 
tackle any of the issues of the day, uh, please send us uh, an email to beyond at fcam.com. So I'll repeat that, beyond at fcam.com. Thank you and we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>